that's how life goes by. And in a finger snap, it's going to be at the end of life, and there's going to be an end to the life, ends in death most likely. Um, and the good thing, the reason we're studying these teachings is because there's a cause to getting old. So if there's a cause to it, what does that mean? Like, why is that important? Because if, if it's something's caused, then there's an end to it. If there's no cause, then, then you know, like, that's it. It just is. You know, like, if it's something permanent, there's, there's nothing you can do about it. If it's impermanent, there's going to be a beginning, there's going to be an end. And so this, this will be a very different class than any other one. And we're here to find out the answer to why that happens. Why is our life going to come to an end at a certain point? Why do we see people around us dying? Why, why, why? You know, like, why are all these things happening? Because as we, I think for me, like, not so much in my 30s, I mean, I'm only 40, but I think you start to get this sense as you get older and older more. Like, I never thought about aging much until the last few years, probably. But until I can start to see, like, wrinkles and, you know, like, <laughs> things. Sarah's like... <laughs> you know, like, things are changing, and I see people around me, too, looking older. I think way older than I look at my same age, but, you know, that's just in my head. Um, but basically, all of us are getting old. All of us are going to die. It sounds like a really morbid thing to say, but it's really the truth. It is what's going to happen. It's not like um, we're so negative when we're just talking about this big downer thing. It's something that's for sure going to happen to everyone, and not talking about it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. And so it makes a lot of sense to try to figure out what's the cause of this? How can we change it? And the bottom line is that we're getting old and we're not able to stop it. Is anyone here able to stop getting old? We, we do kind of think that we can. I think that we do. I have that sense. Like, I think I can use like the right skincare products. I just haven't found the right products yet <laughs> that are going to kind of like stop it and then I'll just stay young. Or um, the just, right diet. Yeah, or, eat well and exercise. Yeah. Like, we really do think that. We really think there is something, but we just aren't doing it right. We haven't found the right combination yet or something. And it's ironic because all the things that we're doing to be healthier, as we're doing those things, we're getting closer and closer to death. So we're working out you know, to stay healthy. Not that it's bad to work out. And then at the end of the workout, we're just an hour closer to dying. <laughs> and it is, I mean, it is true that everything that we see around us, everything that's going right, will collapse at some point. And I think if we, not that I've done this, but I think if we realize that at a deeper level, 
it's um, like a total relief because that's what we're spending our whole life micromanaging. Like we're just wasting our time day after day after day trying to make all these things work that we just can't, we can't change. All these, all these things that have ripened, they're going to end too. And so if we can just like let go of thinking that that's the answer, I think that is a huge relief. That's my, that's my idea and that's when I've had like small little tastes of letting go of that that I've experienced it as a relief too. Because it's like the thing that we're doing every day, all day, that we know isn't working, and then one day finally realizing, oh, okay, I know that's not going to work, so I'm going to put my effort somewhere else. Like, I'm still going to go to work, I'm still going to take care of my body because it can help me get where I want to go, and, you know, it's good not to have to be a burden on people and to make enough money but not investing, like, it's like this huge hook that we have into, like, pulling all these things towards us. That's what it feels like. So not, not investing our whole being in getting these things that are just going to end and not in the way that we want them to. And there'll be lots of happiness along the way, too. It's not like it's all negative. But that's why we're studying this sort of course, so that we can straighten out our delusions, basically. And it's, it seems weird, I think, even when, even with us sitting here in this class who have all heard this before, it sounds weird because we don't ever hear this. This isn't something that we're ever going to see an advertisement for. No one, pretty much no one except for people in the Dharma Center are going to talk about this. It's not like we're going to read an article in a newspaper on something like this. It's the complete opposite message. Like the 10 ways to fix your life or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even, af- I mean, even after this class, which is a really good time spent, we'll be two hours closer to dying. And so the good news that we talked about is that Buddhism says that dying has a cause. And the purpose of this class is to study the forces that cause our world and the causes which give us things and will also take it all away. So life doesn't have to be endlessly about change, loss, and suffering. And that's the point of studying this sort of class. It's not to be able to deal with stress a little bit better. That's not what Buddhism is. Sometimes it's packaged that way. Because it, walking the path does lead to that, but that's not the purpose. It, this, Buddhism's not stress management, you know, it's just not. Sometimes it's stress-inducing. The point is to get completely out of the stress forever. It's not like just learn to deal with it until we get old and die. Which, I mean, what's the point anyways? We've been trying to do that our whole lives. So the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, it's a handbook on how to affect those forces that are causing this so that we don't have to suffer and we don't have to die. That's, that's the point. And it sounds, 
I think even saying that, it sounds like a little bit weird to us, even though probably most of us believe it. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have to just hear it over and over again and keep studying it and think about it when we're not in class because then it'll sink in in a deeper way where it'll make a lot more sense. So we can just hear these things over and over and they'll kind of just, you know, we can't study everything all at once, but they'll kind of just sink in a tiny bit until we take the time to contemplate more and um, be more just be more open and let things sink in. Because it's, it's hard when we hear the same thing over and over to not think, oh, I already know that. Because I do that a lot. And that blocks us actually um, integrating or like absorbing the teaching in a deep way. So it's a good practice to just let yourself show up completely where you are to each class that day not where you think you should be because you all have enough knowledge to know like the ultimate answer to most of the questions that we'll talk about but to just show up exactly where you are and work from that point and then you can make really deep progress instead of acting like we're somewhere that we're not which I know because I, I do this I did this for a long time and I still do that and the good thing is, the goal is to live in a paradise forever. And there are people in this room who will pull it off before you die. All of us will pull it off at some point. But it's possible for all of us to do it in this lifetime, too. So just like Geshe Michael Roach's company, there was 9,000 employees. Imagine how stable that looks. I mean, you hear about these big companies failing, but if you think about maybe like a big company that you've worked for or you know someone who's worked for one, they do feel really stable the bigger they are. Um, but no matter how big, they all fail at a certain point. There's no company that's around forever. They all, even no matter how big they are. And so we look at our mind... In our body, and we kind of we kind of think of it in the same way, that it's we know it's changing on one sense in one sense, but we think it's going to keep lasting, and we think it's going to keep going. Like if you know, we can say, "Oh, I know I'm going to die," but I don't know how much we really believe it when we say it. Like, I believe it, you know, as far as it goes, but <laughs> but not really. So it's, I think that's why it's so helpful to hear all these teachings over and over. Because the more we hear them, they do start to sink in. Like, we have to have some role in it, but in some way they do sink in too. And over time, we'll start to just naturally think about the teachings more and think about how the world works more and just see how karma is playing out in our lives. And I don't, I think we've probably all heard this enough times not to believe intellectually that the mind is the brain. Um, but it is a, an idea in our culture that 
I think a lot of people still hold that idea. I kind of think that I'm more in like a bubble of dharma where the people around me don't really believe that, but the dominant culture probably does. And we've we've had courses where we go through the proof of this, but one way it doesn't make sense is that the brain is physical. The brain's a physical thing. So like you could take it out of your head and touch it. It's a thing. But you can't do that with the mind. They're different things. The mind in Buddhism, part of the definition is that it's clear and knowing. Like there's, you just can't, even if you take the brain out, it's not like you can touch the mind in there. Like you just can't touch the mind. It's a different type of thing. The brain's a physical thing. And the mind or consciousness are, is not physical. It's com- so the mind's completely different stuff from the whole body, actually. And according to Buddhism, the idea that the mind is part of the body is a big, it's a big mistake. And it happens that whole huge civilizations or cultures have wrong views. They have things that they believe are true that really are not. Like in our culture at a certain point, it was thought that women couldn't vote because they're, they're not smart enough or they couldn't own property. And the whole civilization believed that. And they were, you know, they, they were completely wrong. And just like that, our culture is wrong that the mind is part of the body. So just because the body stops, it doesn't mean that the mind stops. I mean, I, I haven't experienced, well, that's not true. I probably, I probably experienced it many times, not that I remember. <laughs> but I can't say like beyond 100% that I know that that's true. But it's the only thing that makes sense to me that the mind would continue, that consciousness would continue to go on. So whether we totally believe it or not, we can't prove that it doesn't when the body stops. There's no way to prove it. You can prove that the body stops. You can't prove that the mind stops. If you think the mind is the brain, then that's a little bit different. Why we're talking about this is because we're talking about that all these things in our life are going to end. Our life's going to end in death, which doesn't mean that that's, everything stops at that point. I don't, I don't believe that it does. You know, Buddhism says that it doesn't. It keeps going. So if the mind doesn't stop when we die, then the whole game is changed because then the question comes, well, what happens after you die then? And the first time all of us heard this, that's probably the first question that came to our mind. So then what happens next? And it's one thing to believe that you won't exist when your body dies. I I think it's terrifying, but I can see how it could be a comfort. Um, That, you know, if you've had, all of us have painful lives, but if you've had, like, really painful life, like, where you're not able to handle it, 
then the thought that things end at death could be a relief. Like, okay, I'm finally done. Which is probably a big reason why people commit suicide. Um, definitely why there's, like, euthanasia, you know, assisted suicide, that sort of thing. Because if you thought there was a possibility that you'd be going somewhere worse, or that you're not sure where you're going, I mean, then how could you do that? How could you do that to somebody? Or why would someone want that themselves if that was the view? Because it's kind of like rolling in the dice. Maybe it'll be better. Maybe it'll be worse. Maybe it'll be the same. You just don't know. And we've all had it. We've all had really challenging situations in our lives. I'm, I'm assuming. I think all of us are old enough to have had a lot of challenging situations. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like really difficult emotional situations, things that were almost unbearable at the time. And so it's foolish to think that there's no other realms like that. You know, where that is how things are. And it's, a, it's very parochial to think that the whole world, not that we think this, is Sacramento and what we're doing. That would be a crazy thing to think, right? Mm-hmm. That the whole world is Sacramento. We are all very aware that that's not the case. And then given the whole planet and all different galaxies, to believe that there's other states of consciousness To believe that other states of consciousness are not possible would be foolish too. So we've, and I mean some of them may be very good states and some of them may be unbearably bad too. We've all experienced both in our lives, you know, to certain degrees. So really the possibilities are endless. Our mind will go on and The kind of sad thing is, you know, like, we go on by ourselves, too. It's not like we can't take anybody with us. Our friends aren't coming with us. Our family is not coming with us. Maybe maybe, maybe for some people that's a good thing. But we're going by ourselves, and we don't know for sure where we're going. So that's why we're studying. Because we want to, we're trying to plant the seeds so that we can ultimately get out of the whole cycle of suffering, so that we're free of all the ups and downs, the happiness that doesn't last, the negative things that always, that always follow or always come, always stay too long. That's what we're trying to get out of. And so we're trying to plant the seeds to get out of that and along the way, you know, we want to get out of the suffering in this life. But if we can't, we want the next life to be at least just as good so we have the opportunity to practice like we do now. And it's always said that we have the perfect combination of suffering and happiness because it pushes us just enough to practice. So we're not in an unbearable situation where we can't even think of practicing. And when things start going too good, 
um, we kind of space out and don't think about practicing too. And those things end too. We're not getting anything more out of those those good things. You know, it's not like we're getting ultimate fulfillment out of them or something like that. It's just like more good experiences and we're just wasting time. <coughs> so the fact that we're alive still after all these years, we've been breathing for how many years? It's amazing. We've had enough food. Our minds work pretty well. We can understand the teachings. We want to study them. Our body hasn't moved on from this mind. All of that is completely amazing and really rare. And it's almost, it's almost impossible. So to think that we would have this exact same thing the next life is kind of delusional in a way. If you think about all the other possibilities that could happen in the next life. So that's the reason why there's a pressing need for us to do it now. And as we're studying to be a bodhisattva who's going to, we're going to help all beings out of suffering once we get there ourselves. All these beings are waiting for us and they're in just as crappy situation as we are. So we have to do it quickly because there's other people that's, you know, with difficulties too. It's not like we're the only ones. So the stakes are, the stakes are high with studying. And the thing that this book says that we're going to be going over in this course is that we can change and we can control losing things and we can control getting old. So there is a way that we can do all of that and this is the guidebook on how to do that. We'll go for like another seven minutes then we'll take a break. Um, so if we fail in this class by not getting the subject... Or, even worse, we can't put it into practice. The consequences, ultimately, are pretty serious because we're talking about the end of our life, you know, dying at a certain point. And the, the interesting thing is we kind of think of the body and the mind as separate. You know, even though we know they're, they're together, I think experientially we think of them as very separate. But it's the same forces that are going to end our life that are also controlling our thoughts. Because we can't maintain a happy thought for more than a few minutes with the mind that we have now. And we try all the time, you know. We really do, we try. But we have a kind of suffering that prevents us from being contented. It's like we've tried, all of us have tried our whole lives, every single day, pretty much all day long, to be contented. That's, the, that's what we're doing when you know, we're getting the next good meal, when we're trying to get a good night's sleep, we're taking care of our body, we're working out. You know, We're trying it all the time, and it just doesn't work. And it's not that we're doing something wrong. It's that it's, it's the karmic seeds that are ripening, that are bringing every thought, bringing this whole life. They've ripened in a way where it's just not possible for us to find the contentment that we want in those things. And our life is pretty much one long history 
of trying to find something that makes us happy. And then if we do get it, which is really hard, it changes within a day or two. And then we don't really want it anymore. Or we think, oh, I wish it was a little different. Or mm, now I want something else. Or, you know, like that's, it's always what happens. It's totally like marketing. Like where they, they sell us like the, the new iPhone. And then um, the next year, oh, this one's actually the one that's going to make you happy. This one's actually better. It's the same way that our mind works. I never thought about that, but that's really funny. So anytime we get what, I want, what we want or what we're looking for within a short time, the mind changes if we want something else and we're not capable of being happy with it. It's not like we decide, okay, I got this thing that I really wanted and now I'm going to be discontent with it. We don't decide that. It's forced on us. It just happens, like every single time. Even every little thing, like I'll get a delicious coffee, like I get a decaf sugar-free mocha with almond milk from Pete's, which is my favorite. And every time there's some little disappointment with it. Like I love it, but I'll take a sip and I'm, oh, it's, it's not quite hot enough. And then the next time I get it, I'll take some and be like, oh, I shouldn't have gotten one today. You know, like there's always something there. And I think mostly we go through life and we think that we just haven't got the right things yet. Like if we got everything that we dreamed of, then we would be happy. But it's just not the case. You know, most people don't get the chance to see that in person because we don't usually get everything that we dream of. But everything that we get, career, family, house, body, health, looks all of it's going to collapse. And on top of that, the mind's not able to be happy. So it's not a smart investment to put all of our stock in those things because they're all going to collapse. So spending, my, spending time developing our heart, developing our spiritual practice... That is going, I believe, from what my experience and what I've been taught, that's going to pay off for sure. Even if we don't believe that yet, we know that the other is not paying off. We really know it. We keep trying, but we know it's not. So, you know, it's a better risk to, to try something else and just see. And basically, either this book works or it doesn't. We can do what we've always done, or we, can do the, or we can try this. And there's not really any downside to trying it. It might be a little bit difficult, but the potential payoff is way bigger than this other thing that we know doesn't work out. And it's really amazing that the Tibetans preserved this lineage for us to study it. And if it hadn't been preserved that way and passed down through all the teachers, through Lama Ami, then we wouldn't have it to study it. So it's really amazing that all of these teachers took such good care of it so that we can have it now. So as we're going through 
We're going to repeat the Tibetan. And there's some kind of blessing put in your mind if you repeat the Tibetan. And in this class, Geshe Michael says, the louder that you repeat it, the more blessings. <laughs> because there's beings around you that cannot see, and it helps them. Beings around us that we can't see, and it helps them. And the thing is, we might be one of those beings tomorrow because we don't know where we're going. Okay, so now we're getting to what we're talking about tonight. The root text and the author. So say, Jung Chub Sempe. Chupa la Jukpa. Chupa la Jukpa. Jung Chub Sempe Chupa la Jukpa. That's hard to say fast. So it translates to Buddhahood, warrior, way of life, entering into. Literally, it's entering into, but as we all know, we call it guide to a bodhisattva's way of life. And that's the main text for this course. The Sanskrit, so up there is the Tibetan. The Sanskrit is Bodhisattva Charya Avatara. It's a Bodhisattva Charya Avatara. Bodhisattva Charya Avatara. And it's a lot easier to say this. Usually there's not the little dashes. You'll just see it, see it all together. It's kind of a mouthful when you see it like that. <laughs> yeah. um, then say Chunjuk. 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 And that is Tibetan. It's the short name for the text. Usually what Tibetan scholars call it. And it basically means learning how to act. And then say, Gyalse Shiwa La. Gyalse Shiwa La. So that's Master Shanti Deva's proper name. The Sanskrit is Shanti Deva which is the coolest name ever. Mm -hmm. Peace Angel. Really, really amazing. Um, so his name is Bodhisattva Peace Angel. So the point is, if we're able to practice this path perfectly, then at some point before we die, our body and our mind will start to change. Our physical form will start to change. We might look exactly the same to other people. They not... They may not be aware of the change. But when we're totally enlightened, our body will be totally pure and will never go through any kind of aging. So that's what we're calling an angel here. Because we have, so it says pizza angel. We have the idea of angel in our culture, but it's a little different when we're talking about angel here. And I really like, I don't think a lot of um, scholars use the word angel when they're translating, but I like that Geshe Michael does, because I think it's really sweet. And that's what the um, la, or it, that's what he's translating that as. And that's where you hear like Geshe la, mm -hmm. is, that's the, the angel. So the point is for us all to reach that point, to reach that goal, and we can do it, and this is the instruction book for it. 
And interestingly enough, I, I don't know, I wrote this down, I felt like it was important, but Gershon Michael talks about in this class that it's hard to pull this off unless people unless you have people close to you die. Um, like there's something about that that really motivates us. And I haven't really had that, so I can't I can't say from experience. But I guess that's what he's seen. And Master Shanti Deva, does anyone know his dates? There's just one. There's not like a range. 700? Um, yeah. 700 AD. Good job. So he's the author of the guide. Normally the root text is really hard to read, so we're going to study the best commentary ever written on this book, which is by Gyaltsev J. Dharma Rinchen. Say Gyaltsev J. Dharma Rinchen. Gyaltsev J. Dharma Rinchen. Gyaltsev J. Dharma Rinchen. And his dates are 1364 to 1432. Does anybody know who Gyaltsev J is? That's his whole month's name. That's um, one, of, one of Lankapa's people. I don't know what they're called. Like, like his main disciples. Gyaltsev means a regent or someone who takes over the throne. He was the first throne holder of Jason Kappa's lineage after Jason Kappa. And this Dharma is not the same as D H A R M A different. The commentary that he wrote is called Gyalse Juknok. Gyalse Juknok. Gyalse Juknok. And that means child of Buddha's entry point. Which is really lovely. Basically it's the entry point for children of the victorious Buddhas. Which are us. That's us. Means code, it's the code word for bodhisattvas, victorious Buddhas. And basically, it's the easiest place for us to get into the path of the bodhisattva and get out of death. So it's, that's where it's guiding us. It's like, okay, this is the easiest place to go in <laughs> to get there. talk about Master Shantideva. Probably a lot of you have heard this story, but it's fun to hear over and over, I think. Say, Dushe Sumbawa. Dushe Sumbawa. Dushe Sumbawa. It just sounds like a bad word or something, doesn't it? Like you're calling someone a name. That's what it is. Uh, the Sanskrit is Busuku. Busuku. Only on your mind, only three things, or Mr. Three Thoughts. And this is what Master Shanti Deva's nickname was in the monastery. Has everyone heard this story? We're going to go through it anyways. But um, so he was born in the area of Bogaya, where the Buddha himself was enlightened. Master Shanti Deva was, and he was born into a royal family. And royalty in India, a king. They would own everything in the country. 
it wasn't just like they had some power. If they wanted your kids or your wife or your house, then they took it. And that, and that was that. Master Shantideva's mother was said to be an emanation of Vajrayogini, who's a very high enlightened Buddha. At six, okay, six years old, does everyone have a six-year-old in mind? Mm-hmm. <laughs> At six, he met a tantric teacher. A six-year-old being taught Buddhist Tantra. And he learned the practice of Manjushri, um, or wisdom. He was given a practice, or sadhana, to reach Manjushri, which, which means meet Manjushri, but also to become Manjushri. And Master Shanti Deva worked very hard and met Manjushri directly, and took teachings directly from this enlightened being. If one of us in this room could meet Manjushri, and maybe maybe we have, I know I haven't, but maybe someone has in this room, you could meet and talk to him yourself, and other people in the room, they would have no idea. They might think you're a little bit crazy, but they would have no idea that you were able to do that, or that's what you were doing. And then at a certain point, Master Shanti Deva's dad, or the king, passed away, and everyone in the kingdom begged him to be king. They begged Master Shanti Deva to be king. Because he had that good karma where he didn't have to be elected or anything like that, people begged him to do it. Like you can imagine maybe the president, people just like begging someone to be president. And he didn't really have much interest because he'd been practicing the Bodhisattva way of life. Um, but if he refused, he knew that everyone would be upset. So he accepted. And then the day before the coronation, he had a dream. And Manjushri, who's his holy teacher, was sitting on his father's throne. And in the dream, he's thinking that he has to get up on the throne, but his teacher's on the throne. And it's really inappropriate to sit on your teacher's throne. And he took this as a sign. And before morning, he ran away. Completely ran away. People were looking for him. And he found a great monastery called Nalanda in northeast India. Have people heard of Nalanda? It's really cool. I've been, I mean, this ruins now, but I've been there. It's really amazing. It's a very famous monastery. He took the vows to leave home life, and as soon as he studied, he grasped everything quickly, because that's how it goes for all of us. (laughs) Um, Because he'd been a great scholar in past lives. But he never let on that he was a great master of Buddhism. He decided he wouldn't reveal himself to anybody. Although he'd reached a really high bodhisattva level, he didn't want to show anybody what he knew. He pretended to be a big goof-off and basically slept, ate, and went to the bathroom, which is where the Mr. Three Thoughts comes from. And so... He became known by this name, and about half of the monks at Nalanda could read minds and were very realized, and they knew that he wasn't a goof-off. But the others called him Duche Sambawa, which is basically, I guess, what you call monks who appear to just be messing around and not serious. And at that point, Nalanda was like the Harvard of the Buddhist world, 
And they were really embarrassed to have this big, you know, like disappointment at their, at their monastery. And so they decided to get rid of him. And they asked him, which this is really messed up. They asked him to teach in this huge meeting hall with a thousand to two thousand monks. Imagine you, you're going to go teach. There's a thousand to two thousand people there. Huge room. All of your peers. And they made a really high throne. But they made sure that there was no way that he could get up on the throne. No ladder. Nothing. No way to climb up. And he'd be really embarrassed. He'd be trying to climb up, falling down. That's what, that's what their plan was. Master Shanti Deva walks in to this powerful gathering of all these monks. He prostrates, and then everyone starts giggling. And then he puts his hand on the throne, and instantly he's at the top, sitting at the top. And everyone's totally shocked. And he asks, shall I teach you something you've learned before, or would you like something original? And everyone's like, oh, well, why don't you teach us something original so you'll make full of yourself, basically. And he says, okay, I'll recite the guide to a bodhisattva's way of life. And maybe you'll, you know, maybe you'll like it. And it's written in poetry form. He recited the first eight chapters and got into the ninth chapter. And everyone was totally entranced because it's really beautiful and very meaningful as well, as we all know. And then it gets harder and harder to understand, and he slows down, and it's getting harder and harder to communicate. And slowly he starts to rise off the throne into the air. And the monks are staring and trying to understand what he's saying about emptiness. And it's as if his mind and space are competing for the space. So at a certain point, he's out of sight, and he's still reciting, but there's some monks who have special powers, so they can still hear. And then at a certain point, he's just completely gone. And all the monks are just sitting there. And then afterwards, some of the monks began to write, write out the Bodhisattva Charya Avatara from memory, because a lot of them were really extraordinary monks. So they're writing out, you know all these chapters that he taught. And then there was a big fight as to whether there were eight or nine or ten chapters. And at a later point, they found out that Master Shanti Deva had landed, literally because he flew away, in South India. And they went to ask him to come back. And they said, hey, we're really sorry for calling you all those names and playing all these pranks on you. <laughs> But could you please explain the rest of this book and please teach us the other two books? And he said, no, he's not coming back, but he will teach those, teach what they requested. And he said, if you want the written copy, it's in the rafters of my room, written in these tiny letters on these little pieces of paper. And then Master Shantideva went through periods of his life after this, and he'd think, what would be the best thing to help people right now? And he'd see people suffering or starving um, or going to war, and he'd go and help. And he was really one of the first Buddhist social activists. He went and performed a miracle and fed starving people, and then he would teach them Buddhism. Another time he went and stopped a war, and we can read this um, in the biography, it's in there. 
Then in the last part of his life, he'd confront people who are teaching strange things, like if you commit suicide, you'll reach nirvana, or emptiness means that you can do whatever you want, that sort of thing. He challenged that person to a public debate in front of thousands of people. And there's one famous incident where in one of these debates, the other person was losing, and they both started to do magic in the sky, so there was like this magic contest happening. There's many stories of him disguising himself as a no-name guy or a beggar and then going places, and eventually everyone learns who he is. And the tradition from the man who wrote this book is that for you yourself to practice privately, nobody needs to know that we're a bodhisattva or what our, or what our practice is. For all appearances, Master Shanti Deva was mostly just a normal guy. So basically, we can perfect the path ourselves, and we're going to do it in our office, the coffee shop, around the people that we have in our lives. It's not like we have to change our whole life. There's no circumstances that need to change in our lives for us to put this into practice. It's completely a mental practice. And that's the beauty of it, is that it's private, interior, or you can even think of it as secret. The change that'll go on is inside, and that's the Bodhisattva's way of life. And then we'll go over the basic structure of the book. Which is, the is basically the structure of our life from now on if we decide to try it. If we try it, we'll find out that it works and it's amazing. And we're so fortunate to have the opportunity. And the outline starts with chapter one. Say, Jung Chub Ki. Jung Chub Ki. Sem ki pen yun. Sem ki pen yun. Jang chu ki sem ki pen yun. Chapter one is benefits of the wish for enlightenment. And this is basically getting us excited about being a bodhisattva and having bodhicitta, which means to be a spiritual warrior and to fight against the mental afflictions in our mind. The true battleground. Bodhicitta is the name for how a bodhisattva thinks. And the idea is to win this war. If we win it, we'll be a much greater warrior than anyone who's going into a normal war or cutting up other people, you know, firing rounds at other people. Thousands of times more difficult. And the battleground will be our office, home, family, etc., wherever we are during the day. Chapter 2, say Dikpa Shakpa. Dikpa Shakpa. Dikpa Shakpa. Dikpa Shakpa. The chapter 2 is purifying bad deeds. And this is the process by which 
you've set your mind up to become a bodhisattva. You're cleaning your mind, negative energies, in preparation for becoming a bodhisattva. So if we choose, as of tonight, to attempt the way of a bodhisattva, the only way to get out of suffering or, and death, we're going to have to clean our heart. And it's something that we'll have to do by ourselves. It's an inner purification to get into the mind of a bodhisattva. And even if we've had like a, a little taste of it, it's a totally amazing way to live. Better than we can even dream of to have that intention in everything that we're doing. Mostly it's completely opposite of all of the selfish thoughts that we have, which are, which are just habit as well. Third chapter, say Jongchub Ki, Samsungwa. Jongchub Ki, Samsungwa. So, chapter three is about acquiring the wish for enlightenment. And it includes developing the state of mind of a bodhisattva and the ceremony to commit yourself to becoming a bodhisattva. Chapter 2 was about what? Purifying Purifying, yep. And then chapter 3 is about collecting good energy. And it covers a lot of the techniques for collecting good energy, which is pretty cool. So we learn to draw in the spiritual energy of the universe after first getting rid of the negativities in chapter 2 which are, those methods are described in chapter two as well. So we clean out our mind, and then we build up the positive energy so that we have the basis to acquire bodhicitta. Purification is like drawing the battery all the way down to zero, and then we plug it into the wall, and then we draw in this energy from the universe. And we won't, we're not going to go through all these chapters at once. We'll split it up into three courses. The fourth one, say Bakyu Tempa. Bakyu Tempa. Bakyu Tempa. Bakyu Tempa. And this means learning to be careful. Does anyone have a guess of what this means? Keeping your vows. It could be. You could say it that way. Anyone have something? I react to people, feel hurt. It's basically that once we learn how to think and act like a bodhisattva, we have to take care of that frail ability like a newborn baby. Mm. <laughs> so it could be through you know, it could be they're doing both of those things. Five, say Shishin Sungwa. Shishin Sungwa. Shishin Sungwa. Shishin Sungwa. Isn't Tibetan an interesting language? It has like, it sounds different all the time. You know, like Shishin Sungwa sounds so different to me than like 
Bach you tempo or something. It just has a different feel to it. Shi Shin Sunwa is guarding awareness and recollection. This one um, all of us have experience with. When we're supposed to be meditating and our mind starts thinking about lunch, Shishin is what catches your mind when this happens. So it's setting the watchman, which alerts us when we're about to misbehave, and it keeps us focused on what we're supposed to be thinking about. This could be during meditation, or it could be during waking life, which I kind of think is where most of us need the most help. It's a lot easier to completely forget when we're just walking through our normal day. So it can be the watchfulness that reminds us of our purpose when we're about to get jealous um, of someone at work, when they get some crappy little thing in samsara that's not going to make them happy anyways. And we're jealous about it after we've said we're going to be a bodhisattva, (laughs) which all of us do. I know I do. (laughs) Okay, then chapter 6 through 10, 6 says Supa Tempa. Supa Tempa. Supa Tempa. Supa Tempa. And this is the chapter on not getting angry. Which I know for me, I I kind of think for humans in general, this is like our whole life. There's (laughs) irritations all the time, little frustrations, sometimes bigger anger. It's just like a constant stream. (laughs) You know, there's breaks here and there, but I think the not getting angry is a huge Well, the getting angry is a huge part of just being a human. So, uh, you know, it makes sense that there's a, a chapter on it. It's the art of not getting angry when the circumstances warrant becoming angry. When that time comes up, when you have a right to be angry at somebody. <laughs> and not doing it at that point. When you're in a traffic jam. Or even if you stub your toe, it doesn't have to be at a person. Even when you injure yourself, you know, when you're just at home, like you cut your finger or you cut yourself shaving or something, like even that angry or that anger. Number seven, say Sundru Tempa. Sundru Tempa. This one is joyous effort. And this refers to having a really good time doing good things. Like you have an opportunity to do something to help somebody or to help the Dharma Center, and you're really excited and enthusiastic about it. It's not like a drag or you're complaining about it and, you know, being pulled along, kicking and screaming. It's like that excitement. Yes, I get to do this. I think even starting cultivating like a fake excitement before it is a good first step. And then it starts to build and build and build until you actually feel excited about it. 
And it means like when it's time to do some mighty good deed, you just can't wait and there's a lot of enthusiasm. Chapter 8, this is a chapter on meditation. And what's the, so through these courses, what's the main reason that we want to study meditation? What does it lead to? Yeah, but why? Yeah, but why does meditation lead to that? Right. Because that's meditation is the platform from which we'll see emptiness, which will then lead us to enlightenment. So that's why it, that's why it's important. It's not just that it's some skill that we have to cultivate. I think it's easy to really forget that even if especially if we have a daily meditation practice to just kind of get which it's really good to get into the rhythm of it, but to kind of forget the true meaning and just recite the words like I'm doing this um, to reach full awakening in this life for the benefit of all being. You know, like just like wrote and just doing it over and over, which is way better than not doing it. But it's good to remember that that's the purpose of it. We're preparing our mind. It's like we're, it's like a surgeon preparing for like an important surgery or something, you know, like we're honing our awareness and our focus so that one day it's clear enough so that we can see directly how the world's working. You know, after we've planted all the seeds and all the conditions are right, the seed ripens and we have the right tools to be able to see it. So we have to have the tools to be able to see emptiness directly or ultimate reality, how we're, how the world really exists as opposed to how we think it exists every day through our deluded way of seeing things or um, our incorrect way of seeing things. Nine, chapter nine, say Sherab Kilu. Sherab Kilu. Sherab Kilu. This is a chapter on wisdom. Ten No Way Lu. No Way Lu. Ten is the chapter on dedication. And that's the chapter where we're taking a good thing that we've done. And we're trying to see the long-term effects of that deed. We're dedicating it towards some particular goodness. Seeing the outcome of what we just did. And the idea is that all of us in this room, and maybe some of us in this life, are going to lead millions of people to paradise, to be completely free of all suffering. So just think of like 
See if you can grasp in your mind the concept of millions of people. Like an entire planet of people. That's who's waiting for each of us. Because they're, you know, just like there's only particular teachers for certain types of people, it's the same idea. There's people that are waiting specifically for each of us. It's not like I'm going to do it instead of somebody else or like Lauren's going to do it instead of Sarah or something. There's people waiting for all of us. So that's the point. That's why we have to get there as soon as we can so that we can help all those people who don't know the path yet, who don't know the way. So we're going to try to serve them. So what we'll do is we'll learn how to stop our own death and how to change our body into some kind of angel's body. And then we'll learn how to reach some type of paradise and then pass it on to all those people. And it's quite probable that from these classes someone will do it and pass it on to others who will do it and they'll completely pull it off. So we can see that what we're doing tonight, like a stone being thrown in a pond and the ripples move out and out, passing on the knowledge. And basically we're being entrusted with a holy, sacred treasure and we have to do it ourselves. We have a responsibility to all the people who are waiting for us too. So basically going back to what we were talking about in the beginning, If by learning this book and putting it into practice, we can reach paradise in this life, then we can help people get out of this way of life where they're literally just running until they drop. Literally running every day, all day long, trying to get something that they're not going to find. They're not going to find in what they're trying to get it from. And they're not even trying the other another option that could possibly work. So that's the point, is to get out of that suffering, get out of that cycle. And we're personally going to learn how to do it, so then we can pass it on to someone else. And there's, if we think about it in that way, there's no greater thing that we could teach somebody. There's no greater thing that we could try to help someone learn. It's not, it's not going to be helpful to ultimately to help them learn how to get more stuff or get in better shape or um, a new diet or like the best face cream or lotion to use. You know, something like that is not going to ever be nearly as helpful as teaching them how to get off of the cycle of suffering or the circle of suffering permanently. So we'll end with thinking about the ripple effect and imagining the possibility of, so it's like a little stone being dropped in the lake and it's rippling out and thinking about how many people it could potentially affect and that it will happen, it can happen, that each of us will affect millions of people at a certain point. And if it's true and we can really reach these things in this life, then it's completely extraordinary. Just imagining 
and then we'll dedicate everything that we did tonight and imagine that it can trigger something like that.